Well, it's not what we planned, it's not what we promised, but here we are, the wait is over, it's the backdrop. No, seriously, this is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining me for The Backdrop. If you've been waiting and wondering, then I apologize. If you usually catch up on listening to these at some point and hadn't even noticed that we were delayed, well, good, I guess. We are jumping ahead for this episode to chapters 10 to 12 of the book of Matthew, because that's closer to where we are on the weekends right now in the sermons. But if time allows, and I have learned not to make any promises in that regard for as long as at-home school is the reality, we will backfill chapters 5 to 9 at some point. Hopefully. But whatever the future holds, we're here now. So let's dive into some of the interesting bits of chapters 10 to 12 that we didn't have a chance to talk about on the weekends. Chapter 10 opens with Jesus sending the 12 disciples out to spread the news about the kingdom of God. Let's start by looking at some of the people mentioned in that list, because there are a couple distinctives about Matthew's list as compared to some of the other lists that we find in the other gospels. First, he mentions a Thaddeus, who seems to be the same person as Judas in Luke's gospel, not the Judas who betrays Jesus, the other one. Matthew also mentions a Matthew, the tax collector, instead of a Levi like the other lists. These differences are probably down to people having multiple names, like Simon Peter, uh, often a Jewish name, Simon, and a Greek name, Peter. You may have met some people today who have, for example, both Chinese and American names for similar reasons. A couple other interesting bits in this list that I wanted to mention also. There is a second Simon in this list who is described either as being a Canaanian, which would be referring to his birthplace, where he's from, but could also be a nickname from the word Cana, which means zealous, which would probably mean being friends with a tax collector would not have been high on his to-do list before Jesus. There is also the name Judas Iscariot, who we are told will betray Jesus down the line. The word Iscariot has some disagreement about scholars of what exactly it's referring to. It could mean, again, where Judas was from, from Kerioth. But it could also be related to the word Sicari or dagger men. There was a group later on who went by this name and who were assassins, basically terrorists trying to overthrow Roman rule on behalf of the people of Israel. Some scholars have grabbed onto that and said that Judas was, was one of these assassins when Jesus found him. The problem with that is that it's anachronistic. The Sicarii weren't active yet around AD 30 when Jesus was alive. And so instead, the same word could have meant something like man of falsehood or be another way of saying the betrayer, someone who stabs Jesus in the back as, you know, the idiom we would use. One interesting note about the apostles, all the ones who have their professions mentioned, they're all middle class. Fishermen, tax collectors, even carpenters like Jesus and his family, these would have been a few rungs above the farmers in the social hierarchy, but not in the elite or the aristocracy. They're middle class people for the most part. The fact that there are 12 of them is also significant. Jesus is symbolically reforming the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes that have gone off into exile and some of whom never really returned, at least the way the Jewish people understood it. And so by having 12 apostles, Jesus is in effect saying the exile's ending. The remnant that Jeremiah and others talked about is, is forming and God's people are reforming here in the land. So Jesus sends the apostles out. 
That's literally what apostle means, by the way, people who are sent out. And the idea is that these apostles will be reliant on the traditions of hospitality in their culture for their journey. This whole thing is done within that system where travelers are treated like family. And it doesn't really make sense outside of that cultural context. On top of that, there is a cultural understanding that one who is sent as a representative of an important person, like Jesus, should be treated as if the important person themselves had come. You would do for the representative exactly what you would do if the person themselves had arrived on your doorstep. And so then when they're not received well, that is the same as receiving Jesus poorly. And Jesus tells them to shake the dust off their sandals, which was a fairly common symbolic action that Jews would sometimes use after traveling through Gentile territory. And so that's the implication here. Those who do not receive the disciples and therefore do not receive Jesus are showing themselves to be outside of the people of God, like Gentiles. And they will face the same fate that the Gentiles would as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did which is kind of like a figure of speech for the worst judgment in the world, like the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah would be better. As we move on through chapter 10, Jesus uh, details all the terrible things that will come their way, being beaten and dragged off in front of officials and all that. There isn't any evidence that Jesus is speaking about this particular trip. There's no evidence that the, the apostles faced that kind of resistance in this initial journey that they went on. But All the things that Jesus speaks of do happen in the book of Acts, and we see the apostles facing them there. One of the terrible things coming for the apostles is a breakdown of family ties. We mentioned this in our sermon on this passage, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it is worth reiterating, family ties were seen as paramount in the ancient world, and betrayal by family of the type that Jesus is describing would be a really terrible thing to imagine. Honor your parents was often seen as the highest social obligation. And so Jesus's words on this topic really are frightening and distinctive. Moving on to chapter 11, we meet up with John the Baptist again, who isn't sure what to make of Jesus. John is expecting a national renewal, a Messiah who overthrows Rome and takes charge. But that isn't happening. And since John himself is in prison right now, this is kind of a personal question as well, not just a theoretical one. And so he asks whether Jesus really is this Messiah that he thought that Jesus was and the one that they have been waiting for. And Jesus's response is to take several passages from Isaiah that speak of the Messiah coming and quoting them back to John, basically. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the poor hear good news. Yes, the Messiah is here. Some of the verses uh, from Isaiah that speak of this coming Messiah in these terms are uh, Isaiah 29, 20, Isaiah 35, 5, and Isaiah 61, 2. Jesus is saying, even if all of what I'm doing doesn't meet your expectations, look at the good fruit. It's just what was promised by Isaiah. And then in chapter 11, Jesus starts talking about John. And if you have ears to hear, you'll see that Jesus is contrasting John with the so-called King Herod Antipas whose actual title given to him by Rome is Tetrarch, not king. But Herod is the one who imprisoned John for stirring up trouble. This is the son of the Herod who Jesus runs away from to Egypt when he's a child, by the way. Jesus, in this passage, contrasts John with a reed bending in the wind, which has a literal reference to the reeds on the banks of the Jordan River. What did you go out to the Jordan River to see? Was it the reeds that were bending in the wind? But no, of course, it's John doing his baptism. But a reed was also 
the symbol that Herod used to represent himself on coins. Jews would not allow the image of Herod to be put on the coins. That was kind of blasphemous, seen as blasphemous. And so he puts a reed on them instead with the words Herod Antipas under the reed. This is the connection with the next thing Jesus says. Did you go out to see someone dressed up in fancy clothes? No, those sorts of people are in palaces. John was a prophet who the fancy clothed so-called king threw in prison. The whole passage is contrasting John with Herod and criticizing Herod in the process, but obliquely. And then Jesus refers to John as a prophet, like Elijah. Well, Elijah was someone who prepares God's way, not the Messiah's way. And so if John is like Elijah, then Jesus must be God. Whoever has ears to hear, listen. In both these things, Jesus is using coded language to say something dangerous. First, to criticize Herod. Second, to claim equality with God. This is a common theme in Matthew, of Jesus keeping what some people sometimes call the messianic secret, speaking dangerous truths just under the surface, not coming right out to say them in the open too soon. But now let's turn to chapter 12, where Jesus comes into conflict with the Pharisees. The first conflict happens due to Jesus and his disciples picking and eating grain on the Sabbath. The trouble here is not that they are stealing food. That wasn't seen as a big deal at the time to pick grain out of someone's field and to eat it. It's that they're harvesting on the Sabbath, doing work. Of course, it's also forbidden to fast on the Sabbath, so they're kind of in trouble either way here. One interesting question is what exactly the Pharisees are even doing in the fields on the Sabbath. This was definitely not a normal place for Pharisees to be. It probably indicates they were seeking out Jesus on the Sabbath specifically to see if there was some reason they could accuse him of being not from God. And there are several interesting dynamics at work in this passage. First, Jesus implies that he's greater than David, greater than the temple, which is noteworthy in and of itself. Second is that when Jesus heals the man and the Pharisees accuse him of doing work, Jesus doesn't even touch the guy. He just speaks to him. The only person who does work is God, who heals the man's hand. Third, you've got to laugh at the bomb Jesus throws at these people who know the Bible inside and out. Have you never even read the story of David? (laughs) But that leads us into the most important thing that's going on in this chapter, which is that Jesus is highlighting the differences in how he interprets scripture and how the Pharisees interpret the same scripture. The Pharisees look for rules to follow scrupulously, and they do. But Jesus looks at the principles and the narratives that are behind and flesh out those rules, that show how those rules actually work in practice. And even more interestingly, how those rules flex and change in the real-life practice of living. There are lots of rules about the Sabbath. The Pharisees follow all those rules and then add even stricter rules for the kind of understandable purpose of putting guardrails there. They want guardrails around the rules so that they can be sure that they don't accidentally break them. And that doesn't sound too bad, really. But Jesus says, that's the wrong way to look at the rules. The rules are examples of how the principles behind those rules work out. But the point is not the rules. The point is the principles. The Sabbath, for example, is meant for rest, for giving life, for abundance, So then things that lead to rest, things that give life, things that embody abundance, those things are always appropriate to do on the Sabbath, no matter what the rules say. The rules, in other words, are a lot more flexible than the Pharisees seem to think. I think that's still true. 
and still a mistake God's people make all the time in interpreting the Bible. We should interpret like Jesus. The principles as fleshed out in the real life of the narratives should guide us more than ticking the rule boxes. And then one last note on this passage. The Pharisees come away plotting to kill Jesus, which is interesting because death is not the appropriate penalty for Sabbath breaking. There were other penalties for that. So what's going on here? Well, the Pharisees see that Jesus is a prophet, but in their understanding, no true prophet would be leading the people away from God, telling them to break the Sabbath as they believe Jesus is. And therefore, Jesus must be a false prophet. And for that, the penalty is death. The Pharisees' misinterpretation of scripture leads them the opposite way of where they should go. In their minds, Jesus is obviously a false prophet because he is leading the people astray. And therefore, everything else that Jesus does and says gets interpreted in that light. They've made up their mind already and everything else follows from it. How could a false prophet do these miracles and cast out demons? Why, he must be a magician, someone in league with the devil, which is what they accuse him of later in the chapter when Jesus casts out demons. One interesting note I came across on the demon possession stories, you often see the title Son of David coming up in those stories. Like the demons sometimes call Jesus Son of David. In this particular one, the people say, is this, per- is this man a son of David? One commentator I, point- I read pointed out that in the popular imagination of the day, Solomon, the literal son of David, was associated with exorcism which might seem kind of strange. There's no stories of uh, Solomon casting out demons in the Old Testament. But the thinking is, well, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and that wisdom was thought to include the wisdom of how to deal with and cast out demons. He discovered the secrets of how to do exorcism. And so that's possibly why Son of David is the title that shows up in those stories about Jesus and exorcism. I thought that was kind of a neat little thing. But Jesus tells the Pharisees, no, I'm not in league with Satan. I've gone into Satan's house. I tied him up and now I can take whatever I want from him. Most scholars associate this with the temptation story in chapter four, where Satan tempts Jesus and Jesus prevails. That from then on, Jesus is in charge, not Satan. But the Pharisees, because they have blinded themselves with their rigid interpretation of the Bible, they can't see it. And so they ask for a sign, like Pharaoh asked Moses for a sign which is hilarious. What about, as Jesus says to John, the dead being raised, the blind seeing, the lame walking? None of those signs count? Of course not, because they've already made up their minds and explained all of that away. And so Jesus says, no, no more signs, except for one, which he calls the sign of Jonah, that he will be buried for three days and then rise again, just like Jonah was in the fish for three days and then got spat out. What's kind of ironic about this allusion that Jesus is making to the Jonah story is that the people of Nineveh, they never even saw the sign of Jonah. Jonah came to Nineveh after all that had happened. The people of Nineveh repented and turned to God just based on Jonah's words, just based on Jonah's call to repentance. So even if the Pharisees were to respond to the sign of Jesus's resurrection, which they won't when given the opportunity, They would still be behind the Ninevites who didn't need to see miracles in order to believe. And all of this is actually the best interpretation of the so-called sin against the Holy Spirit that some people get really worked up about. It's the unforgivable sin. Be careful. What could it be? But it's not mysterious here. Jesus is not like trying to 
hide something from us or surprise something. It is what the Pharisees are doing in this chapter. They are seeing the work of the Holy Spirit and ascribing it instead to Satan. Being blind to the work of God in your midst. It's not unforgivable in the sense of God being like, oh, gotcha. You cross the one line you can't cross. It's unforgivable in the sense that if you see the kingdom of God right in front of you and you believe it's the kingdom of Satan instead, you've cut off the very means by which forgiveness would come. Forgiveness comes through the kingdom. But if you refuse to live there, it's not that God won't give you forgiveness so much as not even God can give it to you. And that's as an appropriate and ending place as any, I think, for this episode. Thanks for listening. I hope you found some of it as interesting as I did. I'm not even going to pretend to promise when the next episode of The Backdrop will show up or what it will cover. I've learned my lesson. But I hope that when it does appear in your podcast feed that you will listen along with me. So I will see you then. Bye. Bye.